You're listening to Brainwaves on WRBB 104.9 FM. Hello, my name is Mary Morris Evans, and today I'm going to be speaking about the intriguing significance of an ancient egalitarian society called Chakalhuic. Chatalhuic is a transitional settlement in Turkey which thrived from approximately 7,500 BC to 5,700 BC, almost 2,000 years. An agricultural economy with a hunting and gathering tradition, this settlement flourished in a fertile valley surrounded by mountains and bisected by a small river. The settlement served as a successful trading post, mainly exporting grain and obsidian. Interestingly enough, the obsidian they exported was so rare for the time period, its presence in other societies can be used to trace ancient trade routes. Essentially, if you found obsidian knives or mirrors in a Stone Age society, you know exactly how far it traveled from Chatalhuic. You may be wondering how we know all of this today if the settlement existed over 7,000 years ago, but surprisingly, the remains of the society are extremely well-preserved, as everything from the settlement was eventually buried under homes, even the dead. Over time, as the settlement demolished and rebuilt on top of itself, at least 18 layers of buildings and bodies reveal a fairly accurate timeline for the settlement, allowing archaeologists to synthesize a stronger image of how these people lived. As a brief sidebar, you may have noticed my pronunciation of the name of the settlement is fairly enigmatic. And this is because the settlement's name is in Turkish. Çatalhöyük means forked mound in Turkish, referring to the fact that the two sides of the settlement were separated by the river. How I was originally taught to say the name was Çatalhöyük, as it's the equivalent pronunciation of the spelling in English. So if you're not confident in pronouncing the Turkish, the second pronunciation should at least get your point across. Okay, now back to what I was saying before. Chatalhuic is deeply interesting for many reasons, one of which is that it defies normal standards of classification. Remember how I said that everything was extraordinarily well-preserved? Some people thought the archaeological evidence that the settlement revealed was conflicting, but why? This has to do with a theory surrounding categories of prehistoric settlements, but since we're only going to talk about the Paleolithic and Neolithic classifications today, I'll just go over those. Chetalhuic appears to possess elements of both Paleolithic and Neolithic lifestyles, and everything in between. Paleolithic societies are categorized by hunting and gathering, nomadic tendencies, egalitarianism, collective property, animism, lack of grave marking, and stone tools. As a quick side note, animism means the belief that everything inanimate or otherwise possesses a soul. Neolithic societies, in contrast, are characterized by agriculture, personal property, sedentary lifestyles, hierarchical structure, accumulation of surplus, veneration of great men, mortuary architecture, and more advanced tools. Just some background for these categories. At one point, they were used to classify the universal evolution of human societies, meaning that nomadic or egalitarian societies, i.e. Paleolithic, were immediately seen as inferior or primitive since they were classified as an earlier type of society. This assumption is false due to the fact that nomadic egalitarian societies have always existed and still do today, even if on a smaller scale. Anyways, these classifications have in the past led to arguments supporting colonization as a sort of forced evolution on these unwitting egalitarian societies. Now, fortunately, these antiquated classifications are seen only as groups of often coinciding behaviors and nothing more. 
defying all classifications almost immediately, Chatalhuit contains evidence of agriculture, herding, hunting, and gathering all at once. While early into the settlement's timeline, it seems they subsisted on mostly hunting and gathering due to the rich supply of fruit and nut trees as well as herds in their environment, they began to develop an agricultural practice due to the rich soil where they settled. It's unclear whether they settled into permanent housing first or began farming first, but the two go hand in hand. Even when herding and domestication were developed, the settlement continued to hunt wild cows, most likely for ritualistic practices and possibly camaraderie. Coordinated hunting parties were organized to take down large prey efficiently. We know this because of detailed paintings depicting everything from the tools they used to hunt to the clothes they wore. More recent restorations of these wall paintings even begin to reveal definitive body types, facial features, and hairstyles. Another way Chatalhuic fails to fit into the prehistoric society categories is that despite archaeological evidence revealing permanent housing, there was no evidence of any housing for a leader. All houses were made of the same basic components. This lack of defining status symbols points to a society without hierarchy. Now, of course, without hierarchy doesn't mean there wasn't any social status. It just means that there were no set institutions of power, which is such a difference from what we're used to today. That's not the only weird thing about the architecture, though. Imagine living in an apartment where the only access to your house was through the roof. I know, pretty weird. Well, it gets weirder. The settlement was shaped in a cellular pattern, almost like a honeycomb or something you'd see under a microscope. All the houses were stacked beside and on top of one another, with only inches in between. So there were no streets, and all movement between houses was through a series of ladders. The only common space was the central courtyard, which was used for trash and waste disposal. As I mentioned before, the entrance and exit to every house was through a covered porthole on the roof, which also served as a chimney. While none of this seems especially convenient, it had its advantages. For one, the lack of doors provided a great defense system. If there are no doors to your house, just take in your ladders and you have a fortified structure with higher ground on your roof. If you're interested in seeing what this looked like, there are many comprehensive artist renderings online. Remember, with a C, Katal Hoyuk. Any way you spell it, it'll show up. No worries. As for the individual buildings, they were actually fairly standard, but carefully maintained, made of a timber structure with mud brick walls. A lot of work went into these houses. The mud brick was shaped and baked by hand, and the house's occupants took time over the years to repeatedly layer the walls in white plaster helping both structurally and aesthetically. Despite the lack of doors in the home, there were windows to let in light and small archways that led between rooms, but even those were few and far between. Most of the space inside of the home was an open floor plan with a couple of smaller side rooms usually used for storage. The main space was kept immaculate and was used as a kitchen, bedroom, dining room, workshop, social gathering place, and shrine. This system may seem odd to us because we're used to seeing separate spaces for separate uses, i.e. churches for worship and factories for industry. But in this society, everything was based within the home. Mostly, this can be chalked up to the nature of a kin-based egalitarian society, but the inclusion of religious space in the home is still a bit odd even then. No one is entirely sure why domestic and religious space were merged in this architectural practice, but in my mind, the most probable theory has to do with the fact that the lineage of the settlement was physically tied to the home. Remember, as I said before, the settlement's dead were buried under their feet. But how and why? With the unavoidable deterioration of Chatalhuic homes, the top half of the home was disassembled and the bottom half was filled with dirt. 
This repeated practice was actually the only reason that adjoining homes weren't connected, as space had to be left between house walls to allow for demolition. Occasionally, the dead would be interred with this practice, but sometimes it was simply done so people could build a newer, stronger house. Later on, however, if someone died in that new house, the plot of dirt from the previous house was dug into and used as a burial plot, so this whole tradition is fairly functional. Although this helps us understand how the dead were buried, it doesn't necessarily explain why. One possible theory is that during winter, when the ground was hard outside, the fire inside kept the house relatively warm, so you could dig deep enough to bury your dead fairly unobtrusively. But this theory fails to account for the continuation of this practice in other seasons. As you can see, the problem with prehistoric settlements is that often they leave more questions than answers. One thing that the settlement's burial tradition does reflect, however, is that much like their home layout itself, everything about the Chatalhuic home served at least one functional purpose. Besides the preservational and aesthetic functions of the white plaster I mentioned earlier, the canvas-like nature of the wall covered in plaster also allowed for a creative practice that continues to reveal the advanced nature of the people at Chatalhuic. From paintings of birds and bulls to the world's first landscape, these ancient people's visual culture serve as infographics, giving us further clues into their values and concept of self. Due to the quality of preservation in the settlement, there are many interesting wall paintings, but for now, I'll be focusing on one which solidified Chatahuik into the art historical canon. Noted to be one of the first examples of a landscape outside of a narrative context, this wall painting only makes sense if you understand the surrounding geography at Chatahuik. As I mentioned earlier, the settlement was built in a valley surrounded by a range of mountains, but one of those mountains was actually a volcano. The mountain, called Hassan Dag, has two peaks, one of which was an active volcano visible from Chatahuik, the magma forming the obsidian which the settlement became known for. The painting itself shows a double-peaked mountain spouting lava and a geometric series of cellular rectangles under it. Although perhaps not immediately clear, the viewer comes to understand that the cellular construction under the mountain is the settlement itself, possibly from a bird's-eye view. This painting isn't especially unique because of the depiction of surrounding geography. It's unique because it is a geography unbothered by the motives of men. The landscape depicted is just that, pure, unbothered scenery. Carbon dating puts this painting at 6150 BC, and while its significance to the settlement is unknown, its significance today is immeasurable. Okay, now that we're coming to the end of today's podcast, I would just like to recap really quickly before I take some questions. The reasons why you should remember the settlement are, one, its long peaceful existence of egalitarianism, two, its prosperous economy and absence of institution, three, its transitional nature and how it subverts traditional classifications, four, its odd architecture and mortuary practices, and five, the art historical importance of its wall paintings. Although we will never really know all the thought behind the society's practices and beliefs, the unwitting preservation of their memory has given us clues to their wider historical significance. All right, now I'm going to take a few questions from our esteemed audio tech, Ben, just to make sure I haven't missed anything. Any questions, Ben? Uh, yes, I actually did have a few. Um, what was the religion of these people in the settlement? Well, there are a couple theories about this. So actually, um, originally people thought that it was a goddess-based culture because of all of the uh, female figures they found. Um, but actually, as time went on, the more excavation that went into this, uh, the more people realized that there were 
that the women figures only made up about 25% of the total. So it wouldn't be fair to base off an entire um, theory of religious practice around this one small uh, element of the greater history and uh, evidence of religion at Chattahuik. Now, a couple other uh, religions that are possible, their their shrines actually included um, dead bull skulls from their hunts. So it's possible that they were, um, there was some element of uh, hunting in their religion and uh, animism, as I mentioned earlier, is also possible. But then again, uh, the settlement existed for over 2,000 years, so most likely several uh, religions were practiced in that time. Hmm. So, okay, so it's over 2,000 years. How many people lived in this settlement? At one time, there was an average of five to 7,000 people, but the population got as high as 10,000 and as low as 3,000. Um, so did the people ever move their house plots, like even if they buried their dead underneath them? Yeah, actually. Um, not everyone buried under your house was necessarily related to you. There was a recent archaeological um, discovery that uh, the DNA of all of the bones under the, like, one house settlement, I guess, um, in the settlement, um, the, the DNA wasn't the same. So they could have been, you know, fictive kin or, like, distantly related. But, um, yeah, no, not everyone was related. They didn't stick to one place. Um, yeah. Okay, so I have one more question. Um, if they slept over their dead, was that sanitary at all? Or how was the smell situation? So that's a good question. I wonder that myself, actually, because it doesn't seem like you'd want, like, dead people under your house in any capacity. But um, they actually removed all of the uh, flesh to keep the remains fairly unobtrusive. So they removed all muscle and skin. And how they do that, we're not entirely sure how they did that. We're not entirely sure, but um, there was a, there was actually a wall painting of someone being uh, like after death being put out um, for a vulture uh, to remove mm. all of the flesh, and we're not sure if that's exactly how they did it, but it might have been symbolic for their um, their death ritual. But anyways, it was only bones, so you know it wasn't there wasn't all that fun stuff like putrefaction. Okay, well, thank you for answering my questions. Thank you for having questions. This episode of Brainwaves was hosted by Mary Morris Evans. Our producers are Catherine Garcia, WRBB's podcast director, and Parker Brown, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by Benjamin Harold. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is by Mari Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all our podcasts. Listen to our internet live stream and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.